Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Cloud Currents. I'm Dave McKinney, and with me today, I've got Yan Trey. Uh, how you doing today, Yan? Hey, David. Yeah, thank you for having me here. Great. So I'm excited because uh, the topic today is about serverless, and it's an area that I just, uh, quite frankly, don't work with um, a lot as of yet. And so I, I know I'm going to learn a lot, hopefully. I'll sound like I know a lot, but uh, this is why you're here. So before we get into the trenches about serverless, let's talk a bit about how you got here. So one of the few things I, I am aware of um, is that serverless really hasn't been around mainstream-wise for all that long. Um, so I'm assuming you probably didn't get started right away with it. Maybe you didn't study it um, outright, but tell us a little bit about your career um, leading up, maybe the early days leading up to serverless and how you got into it. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, I guess I, my first uh, professional uh, job was uh, working in the investment banking, uh, actually. Um, and I was working for Credit Suisse uh, back when the reputation was still intact. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so I was, uh, so I was working with, uh, you know, on-premises uh, stuff. Uh, and, uh, you, know, you know, me and my team, we used to uh, plan for months ahead of time for when we're going to get a new server into our rack uh, and uh, what the what wonderful things we're going to install on that server. Um, and then uh, 2009, I got a job working in the um, gaming. So, you know, back when everyone was uh, playing games on Facebook. So I joined this uh, games company, building Facebook games. And that's when I first got into the cloud uh, with AWS. And so we went from, so at least I went from, um, you know, spending months uh, planning for a new server to just uh, clicking a button, set up auto scaling. And suddenly five minutes later, I've got a new server running uh, with my, you know, with whatever stuff that I've got deployed. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so that was a big cha no, game changer for me. And, uh, and gradually, uh, 2014, you've got the containers came out. And so I was playing around with the containers for a bit. Um, and uh, yeah, that made the things a lot well, even easier in terms of having the consistent configuration for your execution environment, for your code. So deployment and a lot of things that becomes a lot easier, more manageable, more uh, rep, well, more um, uh, I guess uh, repeatable. Um, and then uh, I guess 2014, that's when they announced the Lambda. Uh, and uh, with Lambda, this at the time, you know, when they first announced it, it was. Uh, it was fairly limited. Uh, it was just, okay, you've dropped a file into S3, you can uh, trigger this uh, Lambda function thing to do some processing. Uh, there's not a lot you could do at it, you know, back then. Um, and then they added support for Kinesis as well uh, with Lambda. Um, so they can do some real-time data streaming and the processing. Uh, it was a really 2015 reinvent. They really opened the floodgate with the integration between API Gateway and the Lambda. So you can actually build entire REST API using you know, API Gateway and Lambda, uh, both of which are considered the serverless uh, components. And uh, I guess uh, the phrase uh, serverless really come up, well, I guess was still quite early in those days. Uh, people were just starting to come up with a name for this new paradigm where you don't, you don't think about uh, managing servers and configuring them and uh, configuring scaling groups and things like that. So nowadays, I guess the way you talk about serverless, we are really talking about any number of technologies where you don't have to manage the underlying infrastructure. And ideally, you only pay for them when you actually use them. So you're not paying for resources that are sitting there not doing anything. So, you know, with API Gateway and Lambda and DynamDB and lots of services like that, including S3, uh, we can all call them serverless because uh, we only pay for requests for when you know, we actually use those resources to do something as opposed to paying for uptime by the hour, even if nothing is actually running. Um, so I guess in terms of uh, you know, how long it's been around, uh, you know, it's probably been around, at least Lambda's been around as long as the containers has, uh, but uh, it's probably just hasn't had the, the, the same mainstream adoption uh, as, well, for, you know, for, uh, well, as, uh, as containers. Um, but you know, having said that, there's been a lot of company who's been on the whole serverless uh, th uh, scene for a long time. People like iRobot and uh, people like uh, uh, Barso and a few other companies has been the, you know, pretty serverless uh, first uh, from very early on. Uh, and myself, I've been involved with the serverless, uh, I guess you know, I got into serverless around 2016. Um, and that was, uh, and yes, and ever since then, I've been pretty much focused on the serverless space because I mean, for me, even though when I went to the cloud from on-premises stuff, I was still spending about you know, 60, 70% of my time just 
setting up and dealing with uh, infrastructure, you know, there's a lot of things you got to configure, the networking, patching the machine images, and uh, set, uh, configuring and updating scaling groups, um, thresholds, and uh, installing agents on the boxes, and there's just uh, still a lot of things that you got you got to do. Um, and so when the you know, Lambda becomes uh, something that's more feasible, I can use it to build entire applications, uh, and I can just focus more on the, of what my code should do and what my customers want as opposed to thinking about infrastructure it was uh yeah it became no, no well it became a no-brainer and nowadays i can build entire applications on my own you know fraction of the time and cost compared to what it used to take a whole team to do you know just a few years ago so um yeah so I mean, serverless for me has been a, a massive a game changer for me both personally but also f uh, professionally yeah, so I, I'm not going to look past the fact that, and I want to ask you a bunch of questions about how you made the transition from the financial industry to gaming. That's fantastic. <laughs> Probably a much different level of stress. But um, so it sounds like you, so you started shortly after Lambda hit the street. So 2016. So were there problems that you just sort of that you noticed that um, things like Lambda could help solve, or did the technology just kind of speak to you in the sense that? You mentioned how you were waiting for servers to arrive. You got into the cloud. You could just start spinning up things at will as you needed them, a lot less friction there. And seemingly serverless adds only to that or that frictionless deployment, being able to just to work on your code, have it executed in some backend compute. So was it the technology that really grabbed you or were there problems that you had that you said, all right, this is, this is the answer. Um, I'm going to go work on this now. Yeah, I guess uh, I mean once uh, you know once you've got more uh, integrations within AWS uh, for Lambda, at least uh, that's when I guess to the, um, 2016. That's when it really happened. Uh, I played around with Lambda back in 2015 as well, uh, but you know, back then a lot of the tooling just wasn't quite there uh, in terms of deployment uh, frameworks. Uh, there's you no, know, there wasn't anyone that. That works particularly well uh, out of the box, uh, but also just in terms of use case. I mean, the, the power of uh, this uh, serverless compute really comes in what information can you send to it, and uh, how easy you can integrate, how easily you can integrate with other things within your AWS environment. Um, so with you no, know, with uh, you know, working with containers and working with uh, uh, with EC2, you still have this uh, problem of okay, yes, it's a lot easier compared to you know dealing with uh, your own data centers and things like that. Uh, and it's a lot faster, more scalable, but there's still a lot of things you got to do. If you just think about uh, you know, the, the networking side of things along, um, there's, you know, there's just so much to networking and uh, it's, you know, it takes almost a degree to just understand how all the different networking controls you have to, to deal with within AWS. And then there's also the, you know, trying to do any kind of a reasonable uh, security uh, posture. Uh, there's just also a lot of things you got to do as well from the virtual machines itself uh, to your code, your dependencies. Uh, and when it comes to containers, uh, the, the images that you you, know, you you base on, you still have to patch the machines that you run your container images on, uh, depending on whether or not you're running ECS or Fargate. Uh, obviously, Fargate is a fairly new thing, so, well, relatively. Um, so there's uh, you know, a lot of people that was running containers, at least uh, when I was doing a lot of container stuff, was uh, you're building you know, on top of uh, one level of uh, infrastructure, and then you're going to build on top of that, but you still have to manage the EC2 instances under the hood, which means that there's still a lot of things you've got to worry about and uh, deal with. And when you are you know, working in a relatively small company where you can't just make it somebody else's problem, uh, that means uh, as a... A feature developer, I have to work on everything the business wants and then everything else that uh, we need uh, in terms of uh, actually having something to run our code, which nobody really cares uh, until it goes wrong. Uh, it's uh, one of those things that uh, me and my buddies always talk about how uh, as a backend developer, so, you know, you never get the, you know, say, no, no one, no one ever pats you on the back, say job well done when you're working. Uh, when, you know, you only ever hear from people when something's not working. <laughs> and That's the right, the yeah, infrastructure is kind of like that, where you kind of just expect them to always work, uh, except when they don't. Um, so there's, there's the kind of problem that uh, the things that Lambda really solves is just uh, taking care of all of that scaling, uh, having that good resi uh, redundancy and uh, uh, resiliency out of the box. 
uh, you know, we first, you know, when I was working with EC2, I have to, another thing you often have to do is uh, before you launch a new game or product, you have to do this capacity planning, you know, work out how many requests per second can we handle really uh, roughly. And then uh, you have to work out, okay, how many AZs do we need to play, uh, you know, uh, have a presence in and how much machines we need to have, uh, what's the uh, scaling uh, threshold, uh, how much uh, do we need to, how much headroom do we need to give ourselves so that uh, when there's a spike of traffic, um, we're not going to see a huge degradation in performance because we are CPU saturated and whatnot. So there's still a lot of things that really have to think about, plan and uh, and pay for when even when the users don't come as the, as you plan. And so you know, with uh, serverless and the pay per use pricing model and the built-in scalability, you just get a lot of that out of the box. You just don't have to think. There's just a lot less things you have to be responsible for and have to think about. And for small applications that don't have I don't know, millions of users, uh, uh, you know, you probably also find that your application is going to be a lot cheaper to operate and run because uh, you only pay for the requests when they happen as opposed to paying for uptime and having to pay for having, you know, multiple servers in every single availability zone just so that if one AZ goes down, you don't lose the entire, you don't lose, you don't, you don't lose the entire application. Um, and the fact that the security is going to be a lot easier when you don't have to be responsible for the security of the operating system which is a whole class of uh, attack vector that's taken off the plate from your response, uh, from your plate. Um, and, uh, and that's why, in fact, I think security is one of the reasons why a lot of the, uh, I guess, financial companies, uh, financial institutions uh, like Capital One, FINRA, and many others uh, have actually gone really big into serverless because they see that as a much easier way for them to meet all the security requirements that they have in the regulated requirements that they, uh, you know, they are in. Um, then to try to meet everything themselves and try to build all of the infrastructures uh, and manage all of that infrastructure themselves. Um, so yeah, so there's just so many different ways, well, so many reasons why I think serverless just makes our lives a lot easier and make you more productive uh, as a developer and as a business. Yeah, you've already answered another question that I, I, I had in the back of my head there about, um, it, it plays into the security, but the whole attack surface comment and you know whether things are online sitting idle or only enacted when they're ready to either be executed. That's an interesting um, kind of paradigm to wrap our head around. As So you, you mentioned a couple of times now, we've, we've been talking about Lambda and AWS. We know there's others like uh, Microsoft and Google, but um, I th you're right. 2014 was when they announced it, and I remember being at reInvent when it was announced. And I and I was thinking in the audience, sitting there, and as they talked about Lambda, like trying to re-explain it to myself in my head. Like it was a great internal monologue. Trust me, it was fantastic. And the way I sort of dumbed it down, and maybe this is the way they even talked about it, was that look, you're using containers. We're effectively allowing you just to to take the code that you've written. And you no longer even have to manage the container or the backend compute. You, if you use these particular types of um, languages or uh, frameworks, you can simply submit to have your code executed. And I remember thinking, man, I'm still trying to get containers all wrapped up. Did we even, at that time, we hadn't even really decided that Kubernetes kind of won. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I it was interesting to see that we've already made that leap. And I guess as a, as a method of timelines here, we... We talk about how uh, your virtual machines were the natural progression of bare metal, and then maybe even containers have been the natural progression of virtual machines. Is it right to say that serverless is a natural progression of containers, or really were they a, more of a fork in the road that happened at the same time? Because it seems like a container can do what, a ser what serverless can do, but serverless is, um, like as you've pointed out, removing and abstracting a lot of that back-end compute. But... Do you think of the two as a progression of one or the other, or do you think of them as two separate um, technologies really altogether? Um, I consider them as uh, two separate, uh, two different uh, parallel tracks, uh, but interestingly, they're also kind of uh, converging uh, in a way, because uh, if you look at things like a Google Cloud Run, um, you know, it allows you to to you know to have uh, triggers, have events trigger some uh, uh, compute tasks to be run in your um, in your uh, in your container cluster, and uh, equally you have uh, nowadays uh, you have things like uh, Fargate, uh, which allows you to kind of run. You no, know, they call it the serverless containers. <coughs> which is probably not my favorite way of describing it, um, but uh, you also have, uh, you know, on the other hand, you have um, 
Now, Lambda functions that are now uh, able to uh, allow you to, uh, instead of uploading your code into like a zip file, you can uh, zip, you can you know, deploy your code as a container image. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so yeah, you can deploy your code to Lambda as a container image, and so it's able to you know, load a container image from ECR, uh, and you can have uh, something that's up to a 10 gigabytes instead of uh, you know, 250 meg in the zip file. And um, you're going to have a potentially something that's, uh, you know, with Lambda function that can be more long running as opposed to just the ephemeral uh, only runs when, there is, uh, when there's a request. Um, so I think uh, eventually the two technologies might just converge in terms of uh, uh, what you can do and, uh, you know, you can have a more ephemeral container environment and then you can have a more long running uh, source service for um, uh, Lambda functions that's not limited by, so right now you're limited by 15 minutes of execution time, uh, but maybe you can, maybe they, 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 they will re relax that. And in terms of the concurrency model right now with containers, you've got uh, your application basically handles, uh, handles the concurrency uh, in your application, whereas with Lambda, the concurrency is handled at the uh, platform level where you know, Lambda functions would create all of this um, execution environments, every single one of them is going to handle one uh, concurrent request at a time. So uh, in, essentially in your code, there's no, no, in your application, there's no concurrency. You're not handling concurrent requests. Uh, but there's also other uh, fast or function as a service uh, platforms that are um, that are that are based on uh, containers, which do allow you to have a concurrency in the process, so that you have you know your application can handle multiple requests at the same time, uh, so that you get more efficiency in terms of uh, uh, cost, uh, and also making use of those uh, idle CPUs uh, when you're making an IO call to some database or some other third-party API and you're waiting for a response. So Lambda may do something like that in the future as well, so that the, for customers who has a more a more uh, high throughput environment uh, where they don't want, you know, they want to make more use of the uh, the Lambda execution environment and the handle concurrency themselves, and you know, potentially paying less for uh, for the Lambda functions. Then, uh, yeah, the, you know, the two may even become closer and closer in terms of uh, the use cases you have, and also what your, I guess, development story, uh, what experience may look like. So I do think they are, I think so I do think they are two separate sort of you know, developments or different uh, par uh, paradigms, but certainly the pla uh, the technologies are converging in terms of uh, I guess characteristics. Yeah, that's interesting about the the concurrency model because I I'm kind of thinking if I was to deploy something in serverless, I'm probably deploying something that's more um, expecting a, a really just an input and output like a, a state, if you will, where. It's it's got a job to do, and it's that one job. If if you're gonna probably do it well, otherwise, he'll just be back to the days of creating some very monolithic functions, which is probably what I would do. I would probably do it all wrong. Probably put everything all in one function. Um, but we've kind of danced around um, defining serverless as we talk about containers, what each one maybe does that the other one doesn't do. But if you had to summarize what we've talked to about now, and maybe anything additionally. Defining serverless to somebody, you can and using containers as examples, what would be your way of describing serverless to somebody who's um, new to it? Um, so, you know, if I, if we think of containers as a way to abstract away the machine, uh, then the serverless is a way for you to. Um, uh, to, to do away with the machine altogether and just think about your actual application. Um, so, you know, the, instead of uh, still having something that wraps around your application that you're, you know, you deploy application to run something uh, on top of something, infrastructure, uh, you just think about this is my application and then, you know, that's it. <laughs> you, you upload it to, to, the, to the cloud and then tell the cloud, uh, okay, run this uh, when something happens. Um, so, you no, know, I guess, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the model I'm thinking uh, in terms of uh, describing it to a developer. Uh, but in terms of uh, uh, describing the technology itself and how to classify something as serverless, uh, I tend to classify it as uh, technologies that uh, where you don't have to think about, you don't have to worry about uh, provisioning and managing servers, and you don't have to worry about uh, uh, how the scaling is going to happen. Uh, and uh, you, you only pay for the technology, well, the, the 
the resources uh, when they run. And so you focus on just your application and uh, let the cloud deal with everything else, including the security, including the, um, the provisioning of the underlying infrastructure, as well as the, the scaling of, of those uh, infrastructure pieces. So do you find that most um, serverless platforms, are they, from a compute perspective, are they backed by container runtimes or are they... Are they using any sort of bare metal or, or virtualization technology? Yeah, so I mean, the, when you talk about Lambda functions or uh, some any others, or I guess uh, functions as service uh, type of things, uh, um, they all kind of run on servers uh, in the same way that uh, you know. Ultimately, we still need to have a, a, a machine that runs on servers. Uh, that's not that, that's no secret. Um, and I think every time I say serverless, someone always reminds me of that, uh, which is that's true. Pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, which is true, but it's also kind of missing the point because uh, so, you know, so is Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi has got wires. I mean, it's got a, that's the wire. No, there are wires going to a cable, going to a, a router somewhere. Just that uh, when you're using those uh, Wi-Fi connections, you don't think about those uh, wires because it's not your problem, right? Um, and when it comes to serverless or specifically functions as a service, uh, you know, uh, I think Microsoft uh, Azure's, uh, Azure functions are running on containers. They actually expose the container to you uh, so that you can actually access. And uh, I think you, can, you might be able to connect to the container instance itself. Uh, I'm pretty sure Google Cloud Functions also runs on containers as well, um, but the Lambda doesn't. Uh, Lambda runs on the micro VM technology, which AWS has uh, open source called the Firecracker. It's the same kind of uh, virtualization technology that is also underpins uh, Fargate as well. Um, and so it's uh, so it doesn't run on containers, and uh, which uh, you know which allows them to do some optimizations that are just not possible. And it's also why when you think about the lambda functions and cold start performance, uh, there's been a lot of benchmarks in the past, and uh, you will find that the lambda functions, the cold start, would tend to be a lot better compared to uh, Azure functions and uh, Google Cloud functions because the uh, lambda. Know, service, so it's able to do a lot of uh, optimization that is just not possible if you're tied to open standards like uh, uh, like Docker and uh, you have to rely on the existing uh, container infrastructure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but ultimately, uh, those uh, micro VMs, uh, Firecracker um, execution environments are still created on the bare metal instances. Yeah, and it makes it does make sense. I know, and I think you've put it. Um, perfectly. I mean, it, it, I gather that it, it doesn't really require a container, but it can, as far as the compute side, you can do it with com really any compute that makes sense, but the container is well suited for it. Um, certainly lightweight, especially since you're submitting code and a container might be out there running, but I assume it would have to be assigned to whatever code you're, you're sending to be run. Yeah, there's also other things like uh, you know Cloudflare uh, has got the, uh, its workers. Uh, I don't know if it's still they're still running on the uh, uh, V8 uh, V8 uh, workers um, because the, there was some security I think uh, issues that was uh, that was that was raised by some researchers. I forgot I forgot the exact details, but I think it was something to do with the fact that uh, um, they were using C groups and someone was able to find out a final way to basically uh, escape the C group set boundary. Uh, and, uh, and so you're potentially able to access uh, maybe memory or, or the data that belongs to somebody else's functions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's one of the reasons actually why um, uh, Lambda, um, no, I guess it's not Lambda, but AWS uh, teams has created Firecracker so that they have a, a stronger uh, isolation and, uh, in terms of that uh, you know execution environment um, than, than just using C groups. And that's one of the security thing, reasons why they created the Firecracker uh, technology. Uh, but even then, as far as I know, they still don't do multi-tenancy. So uh, if a bare metal instance is running your Lambda functions, then the, uh, they won't allocate another customer's Lambda functions to the same bare metal instance. Um, so uh, so I'm guessing it's just for precaution so that uh, even if uh, they have confidence in the in the security isolation that you get with uh, right. Firecracker. It's the unknowns it's just, and the yeah, peace of mind. Yeah, exactly. So just uh, the peace of mind that uh, um, they don't want uh, someone else, to, well, something to happen so that the potentially customers can uh, can, can break out and access uh, somebody else's uh, uh, um, information. That's interesting. I, I need to look more into Firecracker for sure. I was aware of it, but I have not uh, done uh, much research with it. Um, so as you're talking here, it, it's dawned on me a bit that as we compare, again, I feel like we're going to compare serverless to containers throughout the rest of the discussion. So I guess it is what it is. And it helps me. But 
a container, a big allure of containers over virtual machines is that that promised portability that we really didn't get to quite. Um, so maybe what we dreamed of, right? The whole dream, dra drag and drop of a VM from one cloud to another, not really there in practice compared to what maybe a container can do. But a container is wrapped with libraries, runtime, all those things that need to execute that environment. And as you abstract this with serverless, it makes me think, are, are do you lose some of that portability? And are you then, and I hate using the term, but are you are you a little bit more into a lock-in state with the platform because you are really reliant on what the platform, whether we talk a lot about Amazon, Google, Microsoft, you're kind of coding to what they choose and, and how they run it, right? Because you're, you're not bringing your environment, you're only bringing your code. So is there a bit of lock-in? How, and how does portability work with serverless um, per se? Yeah, so um, so uh, Greg Hop, uh, who actually works for AWS, uh, he did a really good talk at reInvent this year. I forgot the the, the 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 session number, but I think it's called something like uh, "Do More Than Cloud uh, Lock You In." Um, so he did a really good talk, you know, specifically around the lock-in, and uh, and I 100% I agree with what he said. Um, so basically, you know, I guess two things. Uh, firstly, you're never really truly locked in because uh, you know you have you can always rewrite application. Um, so what we're talking about really is uh, um, is the cost of moving or or switching. So when you're talking about uh, you know, rather than the lock-in being a binary yes or no uh, when you think about a cost they can think about in terms of a degrees of you know how expensive that the switching cost really is um, and uh, it's not and when you think about uh, you know, technologies in terms of uh, switching cost it's not just going to be about the vendor uh, itself there's also the product so you are you know in the same way you have a switching cost to containers you're using docker you're not using rocket so what if docker goes away tomorrow or they do something drastic in terms of changing the uh, the open license the open source uh, licensing maybe they start charging you like terraform or something else does that mean that you now have to re-architect your container um uh, images so that uh, you use a rocket instead of uh, of docker uh, and same goes same goes to other tools that you may be using um, you know for you within your containers environment so there's also a switching cost involved in terms of the decision that you know you made to use uh, containers and same goes to you know to if um, potentially also uh, um, switching cost involved with uh, you know working with um, with certain uh, libraries and frameworks or programming languages, I've worked with companies in the past that uh, couldn't you know, spend have to spend years to try to move away from a .NET uh, web framework that is you know, that has that has been abandoned. Uh, and but because they're written their code in such a way that all of the business logic is written into the uh, the request handler, so they you know they spend a lot of time to rewrite a lot of the code base to you know to so that uh, uh, so that they can move away to a different uh, um, web framework. So there's also switching costs involved with that as well and not to forget uh, a lot of enterprises go through this cycle of every three years let's rewrite everything in a different language new CTO comes in now let's do everything in Java uh, three years later CTO goes new guy comes in okay now .NET is a new thing <laughs> so that's also that <laughs> well that's a good so on that topic specifically are there certain languages that lend themselves a little more um, agreeable to serverless you got the new kids on the block like Python and Ruby but you got the old school guys Java C sharp and I'm sure there's perks of either um, whether it's less code more code quicker execution time or uh, but those just seem kind of trivial unless you're building something at scale but are there certain ones that have an upper hand when it comes to learning serverless? Yes. Um, can I just uh, let me finish the last question? Uh, so I, I get into the punchline. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, so. Yeah, so you know that's the that's the you no. Know, Firstly, you should kind of consider in terms of uh, instead of instead of locking being a binary thing, think about uh, switching costs instead. Uh, but also on the other side, that, that's a risk that everyone should be thinking about um, in terms of how likely do we uh, would we make a switching cost uh, well switching decision later that's going to incur that cost uh, and how much effort it's going to take and how much cost it's going to cost us in terms of uh, building that uh, abstractions upfront so that we can guard against uh, some of those uh, costs that's going to come later. Yeah. <laughs> 
but then the other side of that risk is the reward because there's no reward in life without taking some risk. Every time we put food in our mouth, there's a chance that we may get food poisoning, but doesn't mean that we stop eating, right? Um, and so, you know, when you are banging into a cloud and working with your cloud partner and, and uh, you know, trying to get the most value from that relationship by using AWS for all the things that you can do, you can give, you know, do for you, um, then you're also going to get maximum utility and value from that partnership. And uh, with uh, serverless technologies, you're really you know, going really deep into that the relationship and uh, trusting the cloud and using the cloud for everything it has to offer, which means that you're going to get the maximum amount of value in return so that you can go to market a lot faster. Everything is going to be a lot easier, potentially more scalable, cheaper, and uh, more secure uh, as a result. Um, but of course, then the, you know you have to worry about okay, what if we make a decision later to switch to a different cloud provider or switch to our code from uh, Lambda to containers? Uh, what are the different things we can do to come kind of help to us mitigate some of that cost later? And there are patterns you can use. Things like hexagonal architectures is a really good coding pattern for you to write your code in such a way that uh, you know you can easily your your domain logic is uh, is is uh, encapsulated away into some domain modules so that you can easily. Uh, migrate your code by just changing the adapter so that instead of hand using the Lambda's uh, you know, event context uh, um, um, directly, you will translate them to domain objects and then that's going to call, you're going to use that to call your domain uh, modules and libraries so that uh, you, know, you have that translation layer and when you need to switch your code from running in Lambda to running in a container, you just change the adapter. So instead of working with Lambda's event and context, now you're working with, uh, I don't know, ExpressJS is a request object handler and response handler objects. And you have that trans the adapter layer that translate things from the, from the, from the web framework you're using to your, to the domain object that you're, uh, that you're working with uh, in your domain logic. So there are lots of different things you could do to help mitigate that uh, uh, switching cost. Uh, but of course, all of those means that you have to do more work upfront uh, to help mitigate some of that cost. So it becomes a question of, okay, how likely are we going to do that? So how much effort should we put uh, upfront to help mitigate that cost later? Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's something that uh, it, it sh you should be thinking about, uh, but it should be thinking about it in the right context and framing as opposed to just, oh, locking is bad, the locking is expensive, so we should have never you know, uh, use uh, um, you know, native uh, services. Uh, so to your other question about uh, which languages uh, is going to work better with Lambda, uh, it really depends on what it is you're trying to do. Um, the main impact the language is going to have on your Lambda function's performance is uh, cold start. And... Um, with uh, Java and .NET, because of the fact that you got this uh, virtual machine that needs to be run, needs to be sort of bootstrapped and initialized at runtime, and that takes a lot more time. And with the Lambda, you've got this lot of uh, really small uh, independent execution environments for your application, which means that that initialization has to happen every single time the new environment is created, uh, which is very frequently or can be very frequently. Then the, so you are more likely to see cold starts that are in the order of uh, several seconds compared to maybe a few hundred milliseconds for, say, a Node.js function or for a function written in the Rust or Golang, which is compiled to native. So for that, uh, AWS has done a lot of work in the recent years to help improve things. Um, so for one, you have the provision concurrency, which is a mechanism, a mechanism for you to say, you know what, I'm happy to, instead of just uh, uh, having uh, a temp, well, on-demand uh, execution environments gets created when a user request comes in. Uh, I'm happy to pay a certain amount of, uh, of, of money uh, to, for, uh, to AWS so that they will keep a certain number of those execution environments around all the time. So uh, to serve my baseline traffic, essentially I'll never see cold starts. And so my user's experience is preserved uh, until when there's like a sudden unexpected spike in traffic. Um, so you can do that, uh, but then for Java and uh, specifically, there's also a new feature, well, relatively new, it was announced in the reInvent 2022 called the Snapstart, which is a way for you to say, okay, uh, AWS is gonna, it only works for Java, uh, but what AWS is gonna do in that case is uh, when you deploy a code change to your Lambda function, uh, what it's gonna do is uh, as part of the deployment process is going to create a new execution environment and it's going to then you know, load the, uh, pull up the, the, the JVM, it's going to, uh, you know, the class loader is going to run and load all your, well, a lot of your classes except for anything that you're doing with a reflection and things like that at runtime. Uh, but then it's going to then take
take a snapshot of the memory and the disk space so that it's going to cache those. And uh, so that means that when the request actually comes and the Lambda functions uh, is going to create a, create a new execution environment on demand, it's going to, instead of create, you know, booting up the JVM from scratch, it's going to load the memory snapshot instead and the disk snapshot so that uh, you've got something that can boot up a lot faster because most of the work has been done ahead of time uh, and has been you know, saved into this uh, uh, snapshot. So certain things won't work, uh, things like uh, random, uh, you know, you have to do special handling for random and any, uh, I guess, uh, a lot of the uh, cryptographic uh, libraries that requires uh, like a seed of value that gets initialized uh, when you, when the class loader runs. So things like that you have to pay attention to. But otherwise, uh, you know, you can. Uh, no, I've seen people report the cold start time for Java functions going from a few seconds to a few hundred milliseconds. So you can make a big difference in terms of the performance of uh, Java functions, which is important uh, when you have uh, an, a user-facing Lambda functions, typically you know APIs that are used by the front end. So if you have a cold start that's a few seconds, that means the user is gonna you no, know, even if it's just one percent of the time, that means the one percent of the, uh, the request user makes is gonna you know, take a few seconds respond and so it's not going to be very good for user experience but if you're able to make your code starts uh, fast enough so that uh, even when they do happen it's not a big impact on your user experience then the, yeah then the happy days um, there's also the, the ability to use a grill VM uh, for Java or a .NET native for .NET applications so that uh, you know there are other solutions that are perhaps uh, more um, heavyweight because there's a lot more work developer team well development team have to do rather than just switching on this setting uh, you have to you know compile your application in a certain way to compile them to native um, but again if you're doing user facing api stuff that's something that you really have to think about when you're using java and dotnet uh, but if you're just doing background data processing you know who cares if there's like a five second cold start occasionally because uh, that's all happening in the background anyway so no user is actually waiting for that and uh and yeah, so those are some of the things you have to think about in terms of uh, uh, choosing the language. Mostly it's around the uh, cold start and, uh, and potentially memory use. Uh, yeah, so mostly, it's, I think uh, mostly it's, it's, you know, it's, the, the most important thing to think about is the cold start performance uh, for your language. So outside of public cloud uh, environments, are there opportunities to, to sort of uh, test and run containers in say a, a premises cloud or software solution sets? Um, so there are a few frameworks out there, things like uh, IBM OpenWhisk, uh, and there's also um, um, a Kubeless and a few other frameworks that allows you to essentially uh, run, well, give your developers uh, the same program, or so you can event-based program model that the Lambda and other uh, functions and service things that gives you um, by running them on top of your existing Kubernetes uh, cluster. So, you know, you, you know if uh, for an on-premises uh, environment where you've got Kubernetes going and you've got this uh, containers environment and uh, you've got developers that uh, really likes the programming model and the program model that the Lambda gives you, and the ability to trigger your function to uh, trigger your code to run uh, without having to, you know, run these containers 24-7. Uh, you can use uh, things like OpenWhisk and uh, Kubeless and there's quite a few other ones like that uh, so that uh, you can actually bring those same developer, well, similar developer experience uh, to your own on-premises uh, uh, setup. Um, but you no, know, that is just mostly about mirroring the, well, mimicking the developer experience and deployment experience. Uh, but the but you still have to, well, at least somebody in your organization is still going to be responsible for the runtime behavior of the system in terms of, uh, okay, you know, it's all, it's all well and good being able to, you know, create this uh, container environment to run your function uh, for every request. Uh, but then, the, you know, you're still running on you know, machines uh, so that, uh, you know, you start to think about, okay, how to efficiently allocate those machines uh, to the right, uh, uh, to, uh, sorry, those containers to the right uh, underlying machines. And then the, when you run out of space on your physical machines, what do you do? at that point you know you don't have the same or uh, well, i don't want to say limitless but a very deep uh, um uh, a huge amount of uh, compute resources that say a public cloud can can offer you um so 
in term, and also when something goes wrong and uh, machines need to be replaced or uh, there's networking issues and and uh, things like that, also security. Now the, your your someone in your organization is still going to be responsible for maintaining and securing and managing the underlying infrastructure uh, for your on-premises environment. So uh, yes, you can kind of you can kind of mimic that uh, um, developer experience on-premises, uh, but. You know, you, you know, you are still responsible uh, for the runtime behavior and security and everything else. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the parallels to like containers is um, is interesting. So, and maybe this is a, um, maybe this isn't a good example here, but look at Amazon and Microsoft. Uh, both of them had their own container services, ECS on on uh, Amazon, and then was Microsoft's ACI Azure Container Instance. But once Kubernetes rose to a level of um, adoption, they they both released their Kubernetes services. Do you see a level of standards happening to serverless that that like maybe the big three like Google, Amazon, and Microsoft agree to in the serverless that that will help um, some of the portability here, or is it still too early to tell? Uh, probably too early to tell, and I also don't think uh, that is likely to happen. Um, and I mean, certainly, I, you know, if I was the someone from the Lambda team, uh, I would think that the, you know we've got the the, the reason why we're able to offer our develop, our, our customers the, the the level of performance and experience and developer experience uh, is because we're able to customize the execution environment because we can do things that uh, um, that you know that we wouldn't be able to do if we were to use containers. There may be spaces where you can uh, you can you can form some standardization uh, specifically around the uh, invocation event uh, payloads uh, sort of structure. Um, so there's there's been like a move for things like something called the cloud event. Uh, which is kind of so try to push towards that some kind of a standard uh, well standards uh, around the invocation event itself uh, which uh, even within AWS it's just all over the it's all over the place uh, you know depending on what triggers a lambda function the payload shape is going to look something different um, but in terms of the actual platform itself I, I don't know I struggle to see what how why AWS, someone like AWS would do that when the, the that's that's kind of the opposite of what their customer is asking for uh, I mean, the customer is asking for okay, better performance, uh, uh, better scalability, uh, you know, faster co-stars and uh, and everything else. Uh, and so instead of uh, you know instead of trying to meet some standards and potentially giving your customers a worse experience, uh, I think at least I want AWS to just do their own thing and try to optimize their platform in any way possible. That's a great answer. Um, I, that I mean, it helps clear it up for me in the sense that why why hasn't it happened yet? But that's yeah, um, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so you mentioned cost a couple of times in there in a couple of these responses, and it, it did make me want to ask uh, about how how one goes about estimating the the cost of a potential deployment. Because if it's anything like trying to spec DNS usage and how many millions of requests you're going to see, or S3 transactions, how many puts or gets are you going to have? Like, that's, that's kind of a tough thing to estimate. And it seems like this is really how you're you're estimating the cost. I'm sure there's still some perpetual things running um, or arguably perpetual in the background. You might have a database of some sort, some storage out there. But when it comes to planning costs around serverless, what are some of the best practices and how, how you do that? Like, I'm sure there's plenty of lessons learned in your experiences on, on how you estimate cost. But what advice can you give? Sure, um, and uh, I guess before before I answer, can I switch the question uh, back to you and say how would you estimate the cost for a containerized application? Oh, I would uh, say it's outside of the steady state. So there's the the containers. I would I would guess that most would have at least a floor. There, there's there's something sitting there running, and then there's this whole scaling mechanism. So you, I, I see where you're going that. I've got my floor, just the running environment, and then as I scale, here's how I'm going to um, here, here's my points at which I'm going to scale, whether it's CPU or memory or request driven, what have you, and I'm going to put a, a cost associated with that as I scale to X number of users or requests. Here's how much that's going to cost, and with functions, I guess I don't know how much of that. I assume a lot of that's still relevant, but you also don't really have to have much underlying 
running, right? It's because as you said, you pay for the code when it's executed and really only then. And so you're really, are you just really good about knowing how long every piece of code is going to take to run? Um, and is that really that important, like whether it takes a second to run or five seconds to run? The execution duration is important, but probably the more, uh, most important the, um, calculation or, or, or you know, going how you go from A to B is uh, still the same way you talk about. You talk about how many you know, containers I need to run for a given number of users. Um, the given number of users is, uh, is, is, you know, is, is a proxy to the actually important thing, which is uh, how many requests per second you're going to handle. And then, the, and then from there, you work out how many, based on some, you know, uh, uh, some, some testing you've done, how many requests per second can we handle with, uh, in the, uh, with one instance of my container. And that's how you then work out, okay, what's the baseline number of containers we need to run. And then as you scale and look at, okay, what if the number of users uh, you know, in a daily peak would be, say, um, 10,000 concurrent users uh, and so you know with the number of requests how many requests per second do we expect from that number of, uh, that many users and what does that translate to the number of containers we need to run based on our understanding of how many requests per second we can handle with a single instance of our container so that's kind of how you predict your your, your container cost um, you can still do the same thing with uh, you know with uh, your uh, serverless environment. In fact, it can be much more precise because you know exactly how much a single request API gateway is gonna uh, is gonna cost you. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, you also you know from some some testing, you probably can figure out uh, you know, how much uh, time it's going to take you or Lambda function to execute uh, and to handle one single user request. And so from there, you can look, we can work out, okay, what's the cost per um, per, uh, per transaction? Um, so imagine a really simple uh, API function that involves the API gateway, calling a Lambda function, putting something to DynamoDB. So every single hop uh, component in that user transaction uh, is paper request. And so you can, with some estimate, well, some uh, some heuristics, maybe some testing, you can probably work out you know, a reasonable average for the execution time for a Lambda function. And given your memory allocation, you can work out how much that in single invocation is going to cost you. And then go from the same number that you're using to estimate the cost of your container environment. How many requests per second do we expect to see um, at, diff, you know, uh, at, at the peak and based on the number of users we expect to see and the kind of level of activity we expect to see from those users. And so you can work out, okay, given the, the fact that at 10,000 users, uh, 10,000 concurrent users, we're expecting to see maybe about uh, like a one to 100 ratio. So about... Um, 100 requests per second. Uh, and so every single user request involves the API uh, gateway call, Lambda function invocation, and a DynamDB uh, uh, write uh, put operation. And so that's uh, some 0, $0, $0, $0, $0.125 per user transaction multiplied by 100 requests per second, give you some number, multiply that by number of seconds and then hours. And then you go from there to work out what's the likely or estimate cost for your, uh, for your application. And then you could you start looking into your entire application and see, okay, all right, so we're not just using Lambda functions and API gateway and DynamoDB, and from there we also have to um, trigger something else, do some event processing, uh, and so there's also going to be some you know, calculation based on flow rates uh, because uh, say we are using um, SQS, we're writing you know, a bunch of records into SQS, and uh, we are using SQS to invoke a Lambda function in batches of 10. And so again, you know, go from there, okay, how much is those uh, you know, 100 requests per second to SQS going to cost us? Because we know how much a single request is going to cost us from the S uh, for SQS, because again, it's, pay it's based on per request. So based on the, 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 the initial input of um, number of users you expect to see and the number of requests you expect to uh, from those users, you can start to look at your, 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 your architecture almost like, okay, every single hop in my architecture, I can start to put a number on, on that. And there are also tools like Cloud Zero that allows you to turn this uh, estimate into more sort of like a real-time monitoring so that you can see you know, for individual components how much of uh, how much cost you are incurring um, based on the, the request that you're actually handling. Uh, but in terms of just doing the estimate, yeah, it's just you know, starting from the initial number, how many, what's the, what's the input rate, and then um, and then go from there and start looking at your architecture, just you know, on a one component at a time, and then start putting a number on that. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking, okay, this is a, a really long math problem, problem starting from like the user request to the end of the request. But I'm like, 
man, you can actually probably put a price against an actual request. Um, that's pretty interesting. And that's what we actually uh, talk about uh, when we talk about the FinDev, uh, which because of with um, this, uh, and this which is quite a popular uh, topic within the, within the sort of serverless, com uh, serverless community. Because with this uh, paper user pricing model, you can, you can now really uh, fairly, well, provided that the, you, you have a good understanding of your user behavior and traffic pattern, you can very accurately uh, estimate the cost for individual components and the functions and so on. So when it comes to optimizing, you know, before I, I've done you know, many optimizations on my you know, server uh, uh, EC2 applications or container applications, oftentimes it's just, okay, I've got a theory that this may do something and then I just go ahead and do it and then see what actually happens. Uh, because I couldn't, I can't easily attribute the, the cost of running those uh, containers of uh, EC2 instances to specific user transactions and specific workloads that we are running because everything kind of blended together into one number, which is, uh, okay, what's the cost per hour uh, that we're running, that we're paying for these, uh, these servers? Um, and so we come with, with things like uh, serverless and the ability to you know, look at every single component and, uh, and understand the cost of that component. You can now start to put the you know, cost for, say, supporting a feature. And I actually know this guy, uh, um, Goiko, who, is, um, who wrote the book, uh, Specification by Example, is one of my you know, favorite books on testing. And he had this thing where he's built a startup. And uh, one of the things he did was, uh, okay, he had this idea for a new feature which he thinks people is going to like. Uh, his his co-founder was like, no one's going to want that. And he didn't believe it. He went ahead and built it anyway. Uh, and, uh, and he was able to see, okay, okay, right. Actually, not many people used it, uh, but he's able to put a number on that user transaction the, that are related to that feature that he's just implemented. So he can see the cost for that feature. And then he can also then work out, okay, how much revenue are we bringing in with this new feature? And he can actually work out, okay, you know what, we're actually losing money on this feature. So uh, he you know, eventually just decides to just uh, cut the feature altogether. And when you can understand the the cost of your system to that level of granularity, it opens up some really interesting uh, possibilities in terms of A, optimization. Um, you know, when I want to talk about the optimization, okay, do I, which function do I optimize? Uh, uh, well, if I look at a function, I see that it's kind of cost, it's costing us uh, 10 cents a month. There's no possible reason for me to you know, waste any time to optimize it. But if I see the function and it's costing us $1,000 a month, then okay, maybe it's worth spending a few days of, uh, of engineering time and take that down to say half, then the, you know, the, the amount of time that I'm spending to fix this, so to optimize this, is gonna pay itself back within say the next four or five months or whatever. So you can now start to look at every single optimization you're doing as exercise of that has got a return on investment which is very clear to see when you can really precisely predict the cost and the F and the, and the return on those, uh, on those investments that you're going to put in to improve that cost for that component. Let me ask you this. So um, serverless, if, if you're paying by, let's say, the second to run code, is there a point with which that that sort of luxury of being able to pay at that level is overwritten by bringing, I won't say repatriation, but like, is that at some point, does it get to a level where it makes sense to actually have a persistent container running if you were otherwise running that code for, let's say, an hour at a time? Or does it still make sense to continue writing it and running it in serverless? Um, maybe, I don't know if, if there's any sort of thing where savings plans or reservations apply to, to draw down on commitments, but... At any point, is, does it make sense to move back to a container for running workloads or or not? Absolutely. Um, my rule of thumb is that uh, once you hit the something clo anything close to about a thousand requests per second, uh, say for like an API, um, that workload is going to work out a lot cheaper uh, running on containers as opposed to running in you know with API Gateway and Lambda and whatnot. So the the actual approach that most of us uh, um, advocate for is the serverless first uh, mindset, whereby you start with serverless that gives gonna, that's going to give you the you know faster time to market and the cost efficiency as you're starting out. So with that example 
before with the Goiko I talked about earlier, where you're building a new product or building something that you don't know if anyone's going to adopt. So you go for something that's going to be cheap and scalable. And so, you know, you don't pay for it if no one's using it. But if lots of people are using it, uh, you can still handle the scale. And hopefully your cost and you know, your profit is going to grow uh, with that usage as well. So that, uh, you know, eventually things are going to cover for yourself. And once you have a more stable environment that is uh, running at a fairly high throughput consistently because you found market fit, which is you no know, congratulations. At that point, you can then optimize for cost because every single request that you are paying um, for Lambda and API Gateway, you're getting a lot of good things out of the, uh, you know, in return, but you're also paying a premium for that. And so when that premium starts to accumulate over, say, a, a consistently high number of requests per second, uh, then the, you're going to look at potentially you know, saving a lot of money by moving that workload back to containers. And uh, if you look at the, there was an uh, article from the Prime Video team which talked about that, how they, they build something uh, which they don't know if anyone's going to use. They use the step functions and lambda functions uh, to do a lot of the orchestration. Uh, and then uh, like a year later, they actually surprised, you know, they surprised themselves and they found that the, the, the service uh, got a lot of traction internally. So they decided to, you know, optimize for cost and move their workload into containers and they're able to save the cost by something like 90%. Uh, and so when you've got, um, yeah, so when you've got a really consistent throughput, uh, it can potentially uh, save a lot of money by moving stuff back into a containerized environment where you're paying for uptime. And the rule of thumb you have related, well, that I have in AWS is that uh, any service that charges you based on uptime is going to be about 10%, well, it's going to be like 10x cheaper uh, at scale. Um, the important thing there really is to look at your organization and understand the um, what skill sets you have and whether or not you have the skill set available to run a um, scalable, uh, large containerized environment already, because that may decide at which point it becomes more expensive and or more cost efficient for you to actually run that workload on containers uh, because... Um, you can't just look at your AWS bill and decide and uh, make all your decisions or uh, make all of your decisions based on that. Uh, you have to think about the total cost of ownership. Uh, if you, you know, by moving, if a workload is now costing you $100 a month uh, on running on Lambda and API Gateway and all of that, and you think I can run this for you know, $50 a month instead on just running on two container images uh, on two containers on you know, two different AZs, uh, then the, you probably miss the fact that. Uh, no, you've got, you're going to get, uh, no, that you may not have the right expertise uh, in the company to, to work with containerized environment. And so you need to bring someone into the company to do that. Suddenly you're looking at, I don't know, what's the reasonable number for uh, DevOps engineers uh, in the US these days, uh, but probably a few thousand dollars a month. So suddenly, you know, you are down a few thousand dollars a month because you didn't have the right skill set in the company. And now you need to have that skill set in the company to operate your new containerized environment. And so you've got to think about total cost of ownership, which is going to be very different for you know, a large company that's got uh, lots of internal expertise with containers versus uh, a team that's more sort of front-end focused and don't maybe necessarily have the right expertise in the company to help them run a large-scale um, container environment. So yeah, think about total cost of ownership and um, but at some point, yes, um, you know, it's going to be cheaper to move your workload, uh, workload to containers uh, uh, if you... Also, another thing to think about is the, 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 the opportunity cost, because uh, if your team is spending, going to have to spend more time just you know, looking after the infrastructure, then that means that they're going to spend less time uh, uh, well, innovating and iterating on their product. So uh, it's, it's not just simply, you know, simple case, simple case of uh, if it's cheaper on by AWS build, then I should do this uh, because there's also other costs uh, involved that are less, I guess, are less easily measured. So last few minutes here, and I was going to ask a different question, but I think that the timing wise with your response there, it's, it's super interesting. So labor market affecting everybody right now, education is, is often trailing these rapid advances in technology. You're right. Containers, we're seeing more and more folks who are coming equipped to handle and administer containers. Where do you see this in the serverless market? Are, are, are developers being exposed early on to this type of development architecture to like infrastructure as code and coding to serverless where they're, um, you know, in the AWS world, whether they're also using step functions and, and basically other services to pull this all together? 
or is this still something that you're learning on the job as you enter um, the professional market? Uh, are you talking about the formula like a new graduate perspective, someone who's just fresh out of university? Yeah, I'm just I'm curious at what point is, is somebody really getting exposed to service? Because obviously most of us who go through a computer background have programming uh, abilities. We, we learn that. But to say that we are programming to an architecture like serverless and all the things that it takes to, to bring this together... Um, it just strikes me as something that I, I, I guess I wouldn't know if it was something being taught or learned early on, or if it's something that you arrive at in you know your whatever job or career you've gone down. Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't at least I don't know of any university that has uh, that includes uh, actually maybe Imperial College in the in the UK um, because uh, I've seen I've this I've done some talks with the. Uh, with the uh, with the students there, and they seem to have some exposure to the cloud and serverless technologies. Um, but the good news is that uh, you know learning serverless and learning the cloud is actually not as hard as it used to be. Uh, and certainly, when you're working with uh, serverless, uh, there's probably only about ten services you need to know reasonably well uh, to be able to build most applications. Uh, and those services, um, once you've learned them, they're also fairly reusable. The, the knowledge that you get uh, are fairly reusable. Uh, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly, I think it's something that you can get, you know, you can get to a competent degree uh, fairly quickly. And I've got some training courses and I've got workshops that uh, you know, help teach people and help get them faster as well. Um, and uh, and, but but yeah, there's nothing really beats uh, just learning by just you no. Know, it doesn't have to be on a job. Uh, it's just learning by doing. Uh, I mean, pretty much all of us kind of kind kind of did that. Uh, just learn by doing. And so when you've got like a, like a you know, something that you want to try out, uh, is uh, the nice thing with you know, using serverless technologies is that you only pay when you, someone uses it. So you know, when you're building like a hobby application and uh, using Lambda, chances are you're never gonna pay anything because uh, you know you're not gonna you're never gonna hit anything go go over the the free tier. So uh, uh, it's much uh, better to you know, much easier to, to try those hobby projects and try things out for yourself and learn the technology really well uh, without spending a lot of money on you know paying for EC2 instances that you forgot to turn off and suddenly you see a $100 bill in, in your Adibus account. <laughs> uh, yeah, no kidding. That's pretty, uh, that's a, a nicety here, right? If it's not sitting there running idle. And I think we'll go, I, I'm sure we'll include some some notes on some of those resources you talked about. I know you've got website and a lot of tutorials, which are fantastic. And they're always up to date with the latest and greatest things that are coming out. So Ian, thank you. I, I'm sure we got to half of the content that uh, um, we had hoped to. Maybe we'll have a part two to cover all the other fun stuff. But I want to thank you for joining us for this uh, this edition of Cloud Currents. And I, I look forward to a follow-up conversation in the future, okay? Thank you, David. Uh, thanks again for having me. All right. We'll see you. Thank you, Ian.